Now let's uh, resume our reading in the Gospel according to John and chapter 9. And uh, we'll read at verse 26 where the uh, Pharisees, a committee of inquiry, you could say, ask this man a second time what exactly happened to him. So in verse 26, then they said to him again, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered them, I told you already and you did not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? Then they reviled him and said, You are his disciple, but we are Moses' disciples. We know that God spoke to Moses. As for this fellow, we do not know where he is from. The man answered and said to them, Why, this is a marvelous thing, that you do not know where he is from. Yet he has opened my eyes. Now we know that God does not hear sinners. But if anyone is a worshipper of God and does his will, he hears him. Since the world began, it has been unheard of that anyone opened the eyes of one who was born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. They answered and said to him, you were completely born in sins. And are you teaching us? And they cast him out. Jesus heard that they had cast him out. And when he had found him, he said to him, Do you believe in the Son of God? He answered and said, Who is he, Lord, that I may believe in him? And Jesus said to him, You have both seen him, and it is he who is talking with you. Then he said, Lord, I believe, and he worshipped him. And Jesus said, for judgment I have come into this world, that those who do not see may see, and that those who see may be made blind. Then some of the Pharisees who were with him heard these words and said to him, Are we blind also? Jesus said to them, if you were blind, you would have no sin. But now you say, we see, therefore your sin remains. Again, may the Lord bless the reading of his word. And in turning to the preaching, let's uh, turn particularly to verse 39, the text that we began looking at in the morning. Where Jesus says, for judgment I have come into this world, that those who do not see may see, and that those who see may be made blind. So Christ comes into the world, that those who do not see may see, and that those who see may be made blind. So we are essentially just picking up where we left off in the morning. We are looking at Christ as the one who makes the blind see. We're familiar with that, I suppose. But the one who also makes the seeing blind. Maybe we're not so familiar with that, and we'll look at that, God willing, next Lord's Day. But we're looking for now at Christ making the blind 
sea. And uh, we saw him doing that. In fact, we've seen him doing that in our reading here again too. The blind man here has been embraced by Christ and given vision. The church leaders, on the other hand, called here the Pharisees, have rejected this man and rejected Christ too. And because of that, they are now more blind than they were before. Now, as I highlighted in the morning, and just to remind ourselves, this work of seeing and blinding that Christ does is a spiritual one here, and we're to understand it like that. I suppose at one level that's obvious, but it needs reinforcing nonetheless. The seeing of the blind man and the blinding of the Pharisees are both spiritual things, and that's proven by the fact that no one in this incident is actually physically blinded. I'm conscious that the blind man is physically healed, but no one is physically blinded. So when the Lord says, I have come that those who do not see may see, and that those who see may be made blind, he is obviously speaking of spiritual things. The work here, the work of seeing and the work of blinding, is a spiritual work. And both parties in this incident, the blind man on the one hand and the Pharisees on the other, both parties are changed by this encounter. I mentioned in the morning that we always are. We never leave Christ the way we came to him. So both parties here are changed by the encounter. One party, of course, for the better, the other party for the worse. But our focus today, like I said, is on the blind seeing. Now, the restoration of his sight um, is something that we can understand theologically, and that's how we looked at it this morning. When we look at it like that, the clay represents the curse of original sin into which we're born. The pool to which the blind man goes represents the healing power of Christ through his spirit. And uh, we gave reasons in the scripture why we should understand the pool of Siloam like that, based on the Feast of the Tabernacles and so on. So the clay is the curse. The pool is the healing power of Christ through the Holy Spirit. And the restoration of sight and the washing just represents the application of Christ's work to us by the Holy Spirit of God. In other words, we can just describe the process really as a new birth. Or, as it's described in the New Testament, the washing of regeneration. There's a, a very interesting expression of, of the change that comes upon us, um, which Paul uses in Titus chapter 3. And uh, in these verses where phrases are heaped up, it becomes difficult to focus. But just uh, bear with me for a moment. We read in Titus 3 and verse 4 that when the kindness and the love of God our Saviour towards man appeared, that's of course in the gospel, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us. Now, notice how this salvation is described. He saved us through the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us abundantly, so that having been justified, 
we become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. So that process that the man undergoes has as its spiritual counterpart a washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit. And it includes justification in it. So the text there really highlights the kind of change that's being spoken about. Now, now that's looking at the text. It's looking at the incident, uh, stepping back, as it were, and seeing it from what we could call a theological point of view. But what I want to do tonight, and uh, may God bless us as we strive to do it, what I want to do is to look at the experience from the man's own point of view. Um, trying as much as we can to see what his spiritual experience actually was. Now, I highlighted in the morning that uh, his physical experience and his spiritual experience don't run together in parallel. They are in parallel in one way, but there is a timeline between the one and the other. In other words, he undergoes things physically that he has not yet undergone spiritually. And it's only as the days pass, and we'll see in a moment that days do pass here, it's only as days pass that he is able to look on what Christ has done to him physically and to receive it as a kind of preaching to himself. Well, that's what it really is. I mean, that's what the miracle was, as we saw in the morning. It is a preaching to himself of what needs to happen in his inward man, the great transformation that needs to come over him so that he passes from the power of darkness, from the grip and pollution, from that power into the kingdom of this man, the kingdom of Jesus Christ, as he calls himself here, the Son of God. Now, uh, <clears throat> I suppose with ourselves too, perhaps in another way, a change can come over us and we're not quite sure at the time what it is. And this is slightly different. It is a physical healing followed by a spiritual one. Now, Let's see where that takes us. Perhaps it's best to begin by noting that on at least the day following his healing, maybe more, more, maybe more days have passed, but at least one, he ends up being cast out of the synagogue. If you just look down the chapter, you'll see in verse 34 that the church leaders answer him and say to him, you were completely born in sins, and are you teaching us? And they cast him out. Now, I'm going to look at this expression just in a little while with you. It's enough just to say to you just now that it's a technical term, this casting out. It's not putting a man out the door or something like that. It's, it's to disfellowship somebody. To disfellowship, to disfellowship somebody altogether. Not just to suspend them for a time, such as we are often used to, but to effectively excommunicate them, to declare them to be no longer a member of the Church of God. So it's supposed to be for him the end of the road. He is put out of the communion of God's people. But you'll notice that Christ doesn't have any respect for that decision. In fact, he sees it altogether differently. In the verse following, verse 35, we read that Jesus heard they had cast him out. And when he had found him, he said to him, do you believe in the Son of God? Of course, he answers, who is he, Lord, that I may believe in him? And Jesus says to him, you have both seen him 
and it is he who is talking with you. Then the man says, Lord, I believe, and he worshipped him. Now in chapter 10, um, Christ explains what's happened here. I'm conscious when a chapter ends and a chapter begins, we tend to make a a break in our own minds, but there is no break. Uh, Chapter 10, you'll notice, just runs from chapter 9, and Jesus gives the familiar story of the true shepherd of the sheep who enters the sheepfold through the door. Of course, others try to get into the sheepfold, but they are thieves and robbers. But he says the true shepherd of the sheep enters, the doorkeeper opens, and the sheep hear his voice. And he calls his own sheep by name, and he leads them out. And when he brings out his own sheep, he goes before them. And the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. Now, the Pharisees understood very well what the connection is here. Their throwing out of a man is Christ's calling out of a man. They may be pushing this sheep out of their own fold, but Christ is actually calling him into his own fold. You cast him out of your church, but I receive him into mine. I am the true shepherd. You are no shepherds of Israel. You are demonstrating that in your attitude and in your conduct, that you are no true shepherds of Israel. But I am the true shepherd, and I have come to this fold, and this man that you have cast out, I call him out as my sheep. Um, Because you are bringing my father's house into disrepute. And of course, as the Lord said to them later, I will leave this house to you, and I will leave it desolate. And 40 years after I have left it desolate, it will be taken down so that not one stone is left upon another to certify to you that God has rejected this establishment and rejected this building. And this man that you have rejected is not rejected by me, and neither is he rejected by my father. So that's Christ's explanation of what has happened in chapter 9. The blind man's experience is that he has been called by the shepherd into his flock. So that's really, well, in some ways anyway, the most profitable way to look at this blind man's experience. Think of him as a sheep inside one fold, and he is hearing the voice of a shepherd and coming out into the true fold of God. Now, with that as our background, let's just consider the man a little. Um, He is, of course, as the scripture tells us, he's blind from birth. That immediately tells us that his life was difficult and that he was cast on charity as soon as his uh, parents um, were not looking after him anymore. For, For whatever reason, he seems to be a beggar, probably at the door of the temple. And um, although worshippers helped him and gave him alms, it's probably fair to say that he felt neglected or forgotten somehow by the church. Now, it's easy for people to feel like that. Maybe you feel like that too, that the church or the 
leaders of the church or whatever show no interest in you. Now, sadly, sadly, sometimes that may be true. Sometimes it may be appear to be true, but not true at all. Sometimes it may just be an argument that you yourself use for convenience. It gives you some kind of excuse not to be too involved in the church because you don't think the church wants to be too involved with you. Um, I only say that I don't know, of course, who that may be coming across to or how it may be coming across. I know myself it's true. I know it from past experience that I can, that I can easily excuse my own lack of interest in something because of a perceived lack of interest from the other side. But there's a particular reason why this man may feel neglected or forgotten. And that's because the blind were prohibited at this time from entrance to the temple. Now, you have to be careful with that because the prohibition was not a prohibition from God, but it was a prohibition from the religious leaders themselves. There was a prohibition in the Old Testament, in the law of God, against the blind becoming priests or the lame becoming priests. And even their bodily proportion is mentioned. There, there was to be a, a regularity about the priests so that in looking upon them, there was to be no obvious blemish or defect. Now, the reason for that in the Old Covenant was because the priests were themselves to reflect Christ. Uh, just as the sacrifice was to reflect Christ, so was the priest. I'm sure you're, you're more familiar with, with the fact that the sacrifice offered had to be without spot and without blemish. Why? Because Christ, the Lamb of God who was offered on our behalf, was without spot and without blemish. Let the purity of the sacrifice reflect the purity of the one who sacrificed himself. And the same is true with the priest. After all, Christ offered himself. Not only did he offer himself, but he offered himself. He is not just the sacrifice, he is the priest. Therefore, let the one who offers the sacrifice reflect the Lord Jesus Christ too. Let there be no obvious spot, no obvious blemish. Now, of course, these things don't carry through into the ministry of the New Testament because they belong to the types and shadows of the Old Covenant. It'd be a ridiculous thing to say that ministers today must not be blind or must not be lame or must not have any obvious physical um, blemish or defect. That would be a foolish thing to say. That is taking what belongs to the types, the shadows and the ceremonies of the Old Covenant and to be bringing them into the New but the sad thing was that, again, the Pharisees in their self-righteousness extended this prohibition to everybody. No blind person can come in. No lame person can come in. Now, it would be easy for the blind and the lame to understand why the priests had to be clean and pure. But it must have been difficult for them to understand why they had no place in the sanctuary. But... Um, that's probably how this man felt. Just like maybe some of you feel too, for some reason, that you might not be welcome. But this man would know the truth. And it's quite possible that this man knew the truth better than many others. As you well know, people who don't have one sense tend to excel with others. People who can't hear tend to see well. People who lose sight 
or don't have sight tend sometimes to hear very well or they make the best of their hearing. It's quite possible that this man listened eagerly to everything he could hear and that he possibly memorized everything that he could hear. So we're not dealing here with somebody who's ignorant. This is a child of the covenant who lives his life in the vicinity of the temple, really, and begs uh, for a living from God's people. So in a way, he's in the fold of God's people, but he's not one of them. That may well describe you. You are generally in the fold, but you are not one of them. But now what happens to him in this passage, borrowing from chapter 10 here and borrowing from the picture of the shepherd and the sheep, what happens to this man is that he hears Christ's voice. And the first distinctive hearing that he has of Christ's voice is, is not a voice that condemns him, but a voice that encourages him. Or as Christ puts it, he calls his own sheep by name. That means that the man becomes aware of Christ taking an interest in himself. Now we have no word in the passage of the man asking Christ to be healed. I'm not saying that that didn't happen. It may have happened. All I'm saying is that we're not told that it happened at all. But for whatever reason, Christ and the disciples begin to speak about the man in his presence. God's overseeing these things. I mean, everything like this is part of God's appointment. There are no accidents, only providences in the world in which we live. The disciples begin to discuss this man's situation. And it's interesting that whatever the man thinks the church thinks of him, or whatever the man thinks of himself, it's quite clear that Christ doesn't condemn him. Because Christ says simply that this man has not sinned and neither his parents, but rather that the works of God might be revealed in him. Now, I wonder if any man had ever spoken to the blind man like that before. I wonder if any man had ever said to him that there was a potential for him in the kingdom of God, that God could reveal many mighty works through him, even though he was born effectively a cripple and of necessity a beggar. Maybe nobody did. Maybe nobody's ever spoken to yourself like that, as though you too could be the subject of God's mighty works and that there could be space for you in the kingdom. Maybe this is the first time an encouraging word like this has been heard. Now, whatever we do and say, and whatever sin we rebuke, and it's necessary sometimes to do that, we must never give the impression that there is no space for the people that we're speaking to in the kingdom of God, that no, that God has no interest in them, or that God cannot accomplish something in them, or that God can't accomplish something through them that will be of good to others and to the world. These words of Christ are words of encouragement to the poor and to the needy. So I suppose this man could say what others said, that nobody ever spoke like this man. Now, you'll notice that from the way this man puts himself immediately into Christ's hands, we can infer from that that he has a respect for Christ. And he also has a willingness to be led by him. When the Lord makes the clay, he sits there, he hears, he doesn't see. He is conscious of clay or soil, wet soil being applied to his eyes. He's told to go to the pool of Siloam. And at no point 
does he resist outwardly anyway what he's being told to do. But while that's true, it may still be the case in his mind that he's finding it difficult. I've no doubt he's heard of Christ. Everybody has. It's impossible at this stage to be in Jerusalem during Christ's ministry and not be aware of Christ. Everybody knows of Christ. He has heard of his healings, and he's heard that Christ heals with a simple touch or even by the power of his naked word. But this is different. There's clay being applied to his eyes, and he's asked to walk outside the city. And as I tried to suggest to you in the morning, uh, to walk as a blind man out to the pool of Siloam with two black marks of clay on your eyes is quite a foolish thing to do. It looks foolish. Uh, but it's always interesting to me that when people are taken to, to a knowledge of the Lord, it seems to be done in a way that gives a blow to pride. I'm sure you've noticed that yourself. You find that in the Old Testament and the New. You find that the, the proud are having to be made low except you become as little children, you can in no wise enter into the kingdom of heaven. And what is so true of little children is that they're oblivious to things like pride and rank and status. They're, they're just all together in the one status and in the one rank. Naaman, the proud Syrian, uh, wanted to be healed by Elisha, you remember. And uh, when he was told to go and wash in the Jordan, uh, he resisted it. He, he was angry about it because he expected Elisha just to touch him. He didn't even want to come down from his horse. He thought Elisha would come out to him and just touch him and he'd be healed. And when he was told to wash, well, that was one thing, but to wash in the Jordan. And all his pride and all his nationalism came out there and maybe what, what would be called now is anti-Semitism. The, the foolishness, the the blow to this Syrian army commander of having to go to this polluted Israelite river, as he saw it, and to plunge himself in it seven times. But pride must be brought low. He came down to Elijah as a proud man. He came with lots of wealth to pay for his cure. He stayed on his horse because he wouldn't come down. He was too big a man to go into Elisha's door. But by the time he came out of the Jordan, we're told that his flesh was renewed like that of a little child. Why? Because his spirit was renewed like that of a little child. And he couldn't do enough for Elisha. And he couldn't do enough for Elisha's servant. Pride has to be knocked down. I wonder if the present dispensation is knocking pride out of anyone. Um, it should. I'm sure it is. It most certainly should. The arrogance of people, the proud way in which people speak about God, the proud way in which agendas are presented, the pride we take in our materialism, that our own hand, our own might and power have gotten us these things, a wealthy nation, a wealthy people. This man is asked to do something that might be embarrassing, especially if it doesn't work. But we mustn't complain about Christ's methods. If we really want to subject ourselves to him, we've got to do it. And we've got to accept the providences and the demands that he makes on us. 
And that can start at any level. You, you may feel foolish even bending your knee for the first time beside your bed. Something that you thought of in the past as talking to a wall or talking to an imaginary being that's not there, but you're going to know, kneel down and call upon the name of the Lord because he asks you to, or he commands you to, or even to go publicly to a prayer meeting and to be esteemed a fool in the eyes of the world. To be esteemed a fool, but you must, because he wants you to do these things. We are clay in the hands of the potter. Friends, that's what you are. That's how you've got to see yourself as clay in the hands of the potter. But when he does do what Christ says, he sees. He sees. Now, of course, as we saw in the morning, spiritually, that is regeneration. That is new birth, new vision, renewal. But on his spiritual trajectory at precisely that point, it's just simply an experience for him. He was blind physically, and now he physically sees. It's a, it's a real experience, all right, a powerful one. It's one that's radically changed his life outwardly. But what's he going to do with it? What's it going to mean to him? We read of nine lepers who were healed in the New Testament by Christ, and that was the end of that. Only one, the tenth leper, returned to give glory to God. Only he was changed inwardly. That is a kind of exception that proves the rule that I spoke of in the morning, that healings are usually there to, uh, to be as kind of visual aids for spiritual experiences. But the fact of the matter remains that some people were healed externally, but not internally. Those nine lepers went. They were thankful in some kind of way that they were healed, just like people say, oh, I'm so grateful. I'm so grateful. And if you were to ask, well, to whom are you grateful? You, you were at death's door, you got out of hospital, and you say, well, I'm so thankful. Well, to whom? To whom are you thankful? And how do you show your gratitude to that being or to whoever it is? The real question for this man is once he sees what's going to happen. Christ can, of course, do that for us. He can, he can change things dramatically in our lives when we pray. And uh, the intention of that answer is to make us think and reflect and to worship and to recognize his divinity and to call upon his name. But just like these lepers, we can have a powerful, life-changing experience externally, saved from a sickness, saved from a disaster, saved from a marriage breakup, or saved from whatever it is, and that's the end of that. And you'll notice that when this man is healed, he only goes so far as to call him Jesus, in verse 11. He is a man called Jesus. The people said to him, uh, and right now this is just the people, it's not the, it's not the council, it's not the Pharisees. They asked him, how were your eyes open? And they said, and he said in verse 11, a man called Jesus made clay, anointed my eyes, told me to go to the pool, and I went, and I washed, and I got my, got my sight. Now, we can't simply think that all he thinks is that he's a man called Jesus, in the sense that he must have thought about this man. When the disciples 
saw Jesus calming the storm, they said, what manner of man is this? What kind of man is this that even the wind and the seas obey him? This man must have wondered, what kind of man is this who is able to send me to a pool with cursed clay on my eyes and bring me back seeing? What that means, I don't know. Is it meant to mean something? I don't know. But I put him into his hands. I asked him for something and I got something. I got something that no mere man is able to perform, but still for me, all I know him as is a man, a man called Jesus. Now, you'll notice in the spiritual life that whenever anyone starts to make progress, the devil tries to turn that into a regress. Right away, um, the devil is looking for activity. Any activity that's positive or in the right direction, in he comes to try to reverse it. And you'll notice how quickly he moves into this man's life to try and discredit this man, to discredit him in his own eyes, to discredit him in the eyes of, of the people and in the eyes of the religious authorities. It happens on at least the following day. Um, on the following day, or perhaps even a couple of days later, this mind finds himself at the center of a storm because the news has traveled, it's reached the authorities, and they've heard not only that this man has been healed by Jesus very publicly in a public place, but he's been healed once more on a Sabbath day. So the Pharisees decide to deal with it. And they're dealing, dealing with it, of course, formally by way of church council that's empowered to make decisions and to pass decisions. Now, the way the committee deals with him, or the way the council deals with him, is almost laughable. Of course, it's not. It's far from it. But there's an element of farce about it. Tell your story, and he says, well, clay's on my eyes, and I washed, and I see. And um, when they discuss it for a while, some of the Pharisees say, well, it's an open and shut case because uh, Christ did this or Jesus did this on the Sabbath, so he can't be from God. That's the end of the matter. But others in the council said, well, it can't be as straightforward as that. If this man is not from God, how can he do something like this? And so we read in verse 16 that there was a division among them. There was a division among the Pharisees, a division among the council. Maybe even it was a committee of the great Sanhedrin that was dealing with the matter. Now, you can imagine the voices for Jesus, people like Nicodemus, who was himself a member of the Sanhedrin, and Joseph of Arimathea, who was also a member of the Sanhedrin. They were speaking up for Christ, but these voices were few and far between. It's quite clear that it's the others who got the ascendancy. And they resolve after a while to summon or to cite the parents. Again, this is a formal citation bringing them before the court. Who is he? Is this your son? Was he born blind? And so on. And then they turn back to himself and they say, look, give God the glory for what's happened. And the man says, well, I, I don't know, he says. I've told you what happened. I've told you. And one thing I know, he says, whether this man is a sinner or not, he says, I was blind, but now I see they say, well, we don't know where this fellow's from. And the man, of course, answers, uh, well, this is a marvelous thing that you don't know where he's from. Surely if this man were not from God, he could do nothing. But in any case, 
you'll notice that the outcome of this examination in verse 34 is this. They answered and said to him, you are completely born in sins. Uh, and are you teaching us? And they cast him out. But what's easy to miss in this interview here and this examination by the Pharisees is there's been a change in this man's views. Now, God can bring changes upon us very quickly. Sometimes we can have a knowledge bank that goes back a long, long way. And uh, we might have 990 pieces of a thousand piece jigsaw, but we're still missing the, missing the very pieces that, that make it all make sense. Saul of Tarsus, think of him. Um, he, he knew so much. Um, he had so many pieces of the jigsaw. You could almost say that only Christ himself was the missing piece. And when that fell into place, he was transformed in the twinkling of an eye. One minute he's saying, Lord, who are you? And the next minute he is saying, Lord, what do you want me to do? This man has had an opportunity to give some extended thought to what's happened. And you'll notice in verse 17 that he's moved on from the previous day or a couple of previous days before. Because when they say in verse 17, this time to the blind man, what do you say about him because you opened your eyes? He says, he is a prophet. He is a prophet. Now that's more than he thought the previous day. When he was just a man called Jesus. Now he is a prophet. Now that's an advance. You could say it's a huge advance. But you could also say that it's not advanced enough. It's always good, friends, to speak highly of Jesus Christ and to speak well of him. But it's an evil not to think highly enough of him. Um, he explains it uh, in verse 30. He says... Um, this is why I consider him a prophet. He says, it's a marvelous thing, he says, that you don't know where he's from. He's done something here by his own power and in his own authority. He's done something in his own name that is impossible. He says, since the world began, verse 32, it's unheard of that anyone opened the eyes of someone who was born blind by his own power, by his own authority. And he says, you can't tell me where he's from. Why, he says, this is a marvellous thing that you don't know where he's from. Of course it is. It's a marvellous thing because you are the religious leaders. You are supposed to be the people who tell us if this man is of God or not. And here he is doing this incredible thing in my life, transforming my life, and you can't tell me where he's from. You can't leave it at that. The man says, and I suppose I can say that to you too. There must be an explanation for the things that we see and know. Christianity is a real thing. Christians are real people. Churches are living institutions. The history of the last 2,000 years is the history of Christ and the history of his kingdom. You must have an explanation for who Christ is. You must have a real explanation for who Christians are and what Christians are. You must have an explanation for the transforming power of the Holy Spirit that has entered into the lives of many, many people and changed them right around from what they were before. Not necessarily 
taking them from being drunkards or drug addicts or whatever into fine upstanding people, but just taking them from being worldly people, ordinary, worldly, worldly people, and making them otherworldly people, people with a heavenly focus and a Christ-centered life. You must have an explanation for that. At least this man concludes that this man must be a prophet. What's your conclusion? What is Christ to you? Who is Christ to you? But you'll notice the discouragement that follows. He's testified boldly to Christ. And let me say too that he's done it in such a way that means that he's going to be trampling on toes. He's, he's certainly done that. But the discouragement comes to him. You were born in sins, he said. You were all together born in sins. And uh, will you teach us? Will you teach us? And they cast him out. That's verse 34. You were born in sin. That's their judgment. That's their conclusion. Here you have the leading religious authorities of the day. The people who are leading the church, the visible church. And they are saying to this man, you know what? They say, your blindness is or was a special judgment from God upon you. They're leaving aside for the moment how he's got sight. The reason for that is because people who are bent on rejecting God and rejecting Christ are often inconsistent with themselves in their own thinking, but they don't care. They just want to do the Christian down. They want to do Christ down. They want to do the church down. You are born in sins. It's a judgment upon you. Have you ever asked yourself why you were born blind? Because the curse of God was upon you from the start. And, they said, you have the audacity to be teaching us. The audacity. Therefore, they cast him out. Like I said earlier, a formal expression of being out of the church so that this man now is to be treated by everybody like a heathen man or a publican. You know, the, the Jewish people feared this pretty much as much as death itself, to be, to be ostracized from the church of God, to be put out of the synagogue, to be disfellowshipped, was so much to be feared. And normally, understandably so. But what happens when the powers or the authorities of the church fall into the hands of the unworthy? What happens when the under-shepherds are not worthy of being called shepherds? Uh, in fact, we have that in chapter 10. These people may be pushing this sheep out of the flock, but Christ's actually pulling him, pulling him out of the fold and into his own flock. It's a sad thing when this man was to be safer outside of the church than he was in it. This is a warning against treating the church as infallible. A warning. And treating the church discipline as though it was infallible. Very often, still, churches can abuse power like this. And it's often done by people who are rejecting Christ in some kind of way themselves. They're very quick to reject others and put them out. We were told early in the chapter that the Pharisees were divided amongst themselves. So I assume there was a minority voice. I assume that there were people like Nicodemus or Joseph Arimathea said, no, we don't accept putting this man out. He's only, he's only telling what happened to him. But they're outvoted. And it's not the first time or the last time that the minority is right in the church of God. Spurgeon said, when I look for the truth, I don't count heads. 
but some people do count heads when they're looking for the truth. They think a majority is right. Some people, even in conservative churches, are so foolish as to believe that when a session collectively decides something, or when a presbytery collectively decides something, that it must be right. What a load of nonsense. What a load of dangerous nonsense that is. It's also a warning against watchmen generally, and the Bible is full of that. Warnings against false shepherds. We, we just noticed an example of it, actually, just a couple of weeks ago. I mean, there are so many examples of it, especially throughout the prophets. But in the Song of Solomon, the, 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 the church looks for her beloved. And uh, she says, the watchman, this is Song of Solomon, chapter 5, verse 7. The watchmen who went about the city found me. They struck me and they wounded me. You remember it had been so different in chapter 3 when the watchmen in the city um, when she asked, have you seen my beloved? Scarcely had I passed them when I found him. In other words, the implication is they guided her right. But what you have in chapter five are false watchmen. They struck me and they wounded me and took my veil from me. And how often it is the case that, that people in authority like this can strike the people of God and hurt the people of God and wound them as weak sheep abusing a position as under-shepherds in God's kingdom. So this is a great trial to the man. Don't, it's a great trial. and Don't be surprised sometimes, you see, in, in your journey Christward, don't be surprised sometimes if the church or even office bearers in the church get in your way and become an obstacle instead of becoming a help. Now, nine times out of ten, I'm sure they're a help. But not always. Sometimes, sometimes Satan will present them as obstacles, even though they're not. In fact, they might even keep you from talking to them because you somehow think that they won't be interested in talking to you. Um, you you've got to also beware of people who, who make insinuations or, or downright accusations against watchmen or office bearers in the church because that is again the devil doing his work to separate you from them that's why paul says to timothy not to receive any accusations against officers officers in the church except in the presence of two or three witnesses don't entertain them don't listen to them because great damage can come like that and here the devil has used the synagogue he has used the institution of the church itself to keep this man, or to drive this man away from Christ. But God's sovereign. God's sovereign. God always knows what he's doing. And the fact is that God's drawing him away from false shepherds who would only mislead him anyway, and drawing him to the true shepherd, who is the Lord Jesus Christ. It is the Father that is drawing him through the Son and by the Spirit. So the shepherd finds him and calls him again by name. Now again, this takes place quite a bit later. Quite a bit later. We're told in uh, verse 35 that Jesus heard they had cast him out. Now we're to allow at least a day to pass, if not more. These things take time. It takes time for these findings to be circulated. 
the man hasn't even seen Christ since then, but the news comes to Christ that they had cast him out of the synagogue. And Christ feels for this man. Christ's heart is with him. Christ knows that this man was in his path for this purpose. And Christ is concerned to bring this sheep out of that fold and safely into his own. I mean, it's a thought, really. This man blind from birth, like I say, is just a nobody. I mean, he is a nobody. And it's very hard for us to understand sometimes how Christ cares for people who are nobodies. And whenever we feel instinctively that somebody is a nobody, we're to remember that Christ made that nobody into somebody and that he does care for people who who are not really cared for by anybody else. But when Christ finds him, you notice that he confronts him with a question which raises the bar. It moves the conversation, the interaction onto a higher level altogether. Do you believe in the Son of God? Verse 35. Where does this come from? This question, like I said, takes the man to a higher plane. This is the man who was speaking of Jesus as a man called Jesus. On reflection, he's come to speak of him as a prophet, maybe even more than a prophet, an extraordinary prophet. But now Christ is really confronting him with with the acid test of it all. Who do you really say that I am? Who am I? Do you believe in the Son of God? Now, as the days have passed, this man has thought. Councils have been convened, yes. Witnesses have been called. Judgments have been passed. But this man has had time to think. And it's no surprise, really, when he's had time to think that he comes to the conclusion that that the man is the Messiah and the hope of Israel, the one they've all been waiting. And he heard many a day there at the temple gate people claiming him to be just that. And he's pieced things together, the clay and the pool and the sight that he's received. What does it all mean? And he, he knows. He knows so much. But with the help of the Holy Spirit, it is all coming together. And everything has a timing in God's kingdom. Christ doesn't come with this question too soon. Neither does he come with this question too late. It's just the right time to ask, do you believe in the Son of God? It's no surprise that this Jewish man is hesitant. He's hesitant, just like Saul of Tarsus. You'll remember when Saul of Tarsus was struck with light from heaven. He knew it was a divine glory. I mean, he knew that. He knew that the, the light that outshone the sun at midday on the road to Damascus, he knew it was a divine light. But still what he said was, who are you, Lord? Because he couldn't quite reconcile the, the glory of the voice with the expression, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? And of course, Jesus reveals himself to him. And the same is true here. Who is he, Lord, that I may believe in him? Reveal him to me, and I'll believe. And Jesus said, it's me. You've seen him. 
and I'm speaking with you. Do you believe that? Do you believe that I, the one who anointed you and sent you to the pool, the pool that speaks of me, and gave you your sight, do you believe that I am the Son of God? Yes, he said. Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. That expression doesn't mean here that he just paid him respects. Sometimes the word can be used in that looser sense of just bowing down at someone's feet and paying them respect. That's not what it means here, particularly in one of the four contexts where Christ is expressly spoken of as the Son of God. Four times in this gospel, this is one of them. And so when he falls down and worships him, we are to understand that as divine worship or worship of the divine. And it's in his confession, I believe, and it's in his worship where he prays. That's where we know that this man has passed from death to life. That's when it becomes clear. When exactly it happened, we don't know. Some are changed quickly, like Saul, some more slowly. When does night become day? When does autumn become winter? We don't know exactly when this man passes from death to life, but we know at the precise point that he makes this confession and worship that he knows that the Messiah is truly the Son of God and he embraces him. All he needs is the equation to be drawn. And he's embraced him because his heart, his heart is ready. Now, on the trajectory of this man's experience, I wonder where you are yourself tonight. I mean, the real question for you, and essentially I'm leaving you with it, is who is Christ to you? What is Christ to you? A man? A prophet? The Son of God? Have you come to him for cleansing? Have you done that? Have you gone to the pool of Siloam? Have you asked the Lord to help you and to renew you, to receive you, to forgive you and to wash you? Have you confessed who he is and have you worshipped him? He's asking you that question tonight. Do you believe in the Son of God? What will you say in response? What are you saying in response and what will you do? Amen. Let's uh, close our worship tonight by singing in Psalm 147.